In 2008, at the age of 44, my guest on today's program left Yale University, where he taught English, and became a full-time writer. In the years since leaving academia, he's amassed an impressive body of work, much of it challenging the status quo. I knew I had to talk to him when I read his recent essay in Unheard, Escaping American Tribalism, about his defection from the progressive left. I wrote the essay to try to think, at least in a preliminary way, about this act of leaving the group or leaving the tribe. Because we talk incessantly and, you know, appropriately about the tribes or camps that politics is divided into in the United States, and I take it in other countries as well. But I think we don't think very much or talk very much about people who step out of that binary. William Derezowitz is an essayist and cultural critic and the author of Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and The Way to a Meaningful Life. His latest book is out this month. It's called The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. And it is a collection of standout pieces from the past few decades. In it, he writes, To be an individual, the years have taught me, takes a constant effort. These essays are an offering to those who wish to be one too. I'm thrilled to have William Derezowitz as my guest today on Lean Out. Bill, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to talk about The End of Solitude, which is a collection of essays that I really felt kind of nourishes the soul. But first, I want to talk about a recent essay that you wrote for Unheard, Escaping American Tribalism. That certainly helped me feel less alone as you talk about in the essay. It's about the decline of NPR, which you once thought of as your home in America and your discovery of heterodox podcasts like Megan Downs, who we both know. Tell me about discovering this new ecosystem of independent media and changing your mind on the progressive left. Right. I mean, like you, I, I think it sounds and like a lot of people, including Megan, she's talked about this for herself. I had become increasingly disenchanted with where the progressive left had gone. And I should say that I still consider myself on the progressive left, just not as it's become, you know, more like what it was in 2016 with the Bernie Sanders campaign, but not this cultural turn, which seemed to me not only to place the wrong emphasis on what progressive politics should be, but also to be based on, uh, in many cases, suppression and distortion of reality. And I was hearing this coming out of NPR and other outlets that I had thought of as, you know, not only my home in America, but basically reliable sources of uh, news about reality. And, you know, I lucked into this heterodox space just serendipitously. Megan asked me to be on her podcast for my last book, which was about the arts economy, came out a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I so enjoyed the conversation with her that I just started listening to her. And she'll mention in passing various other podcasts. And at first I thought, oh my God, I can't listen to all these podcasts. I'm not a podcast person. I wasn't listening to podcasts. And then also like, how can I, where can I find the time on top of the like three hours of NPR I listen to every day? <laughs> and had been since I was like 23. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, you know, I could just stop listening to NPR. It was like this 
amazing, you know, sort of stepping through this door that I didn't think was there. And I wrote the essay to talk about that, but also to try to think, at least in a preliminary way, about this act of leaving the group or leaving the tribe. Because we talk incessantly and, you know, appropriately about the tribes or camps that politics is divided into in the United States, and I take it in other countries as well. But I think we don't think very much or talk very much about people who step out of that binary, right? And I think it's important to do that. And I think one reason it's important to do that is that there are more of them or of us than we think. That's part of the problem. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, on the issue of being politically homeless, I mean, I remember reading an essay from Colin Wright about cancel culture. And in in the essay, he said, if you're looking for common characteristics of those of us who are, you know, leftist heretics, basically, it's that we just can't go along kind of mumbling slogans. We can't say things we know aren't true. Do you relate to that statement too? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think personally, I care more about truth than any other value, including justice, which may be just who I am. But also, I think what's so important about this is that there is no justice without truth, unless you have an accurate picture or as accurate a picture as possible of reality. You're not going to know how reality should change, where it should go, how it can be changed. And I think we see this on the left with the growingly obvious failure of the progressive political project over the last few years, the lost elections, the unpassed bills and so forth. Mm -hmm. And the inability to talk about it. I mean, while we're talking about this essay, it it was originally commissioned, as you note, but the editor declined to publish (laughs) it. Right. So it was for a journal I had written for many years, had a very positive, uh, yeah, I might as well say it's the American scholar. Some people think I was talking about the Atlantic. The American scholar is an old and venerable literary quarterly that's actually put out by the Phi Beta Kappa Association or society, whatever it's called. And it's always kind of middle of the road, you know, maybe sort of liberal by default, but basically it was hospitable to many points of view. And I certainly never had a problem writing whatever I wanted. And I'd written many, many pieces for them. I had a column for them a weekly column for two years. And the editor was retiring. He invited, he said, you know, I would love to have you in the pages one more time. You can write whatever you want. So I wanted to say this for a while. And I also knew that I would be challenging the readership, uh, presumably an NPR listening, New York Times reading readership, you know, but in a way that I thought would really be worth it, you know? And his initial reaction to the essay was like, oh, you know, on the one hand, I find this kind of really challenging, but I'm really glad that it's challenging and you're saying things that I've kind of suspected but didn't want to admit to myself. And I thought, great. And then two weeks later, he came back to me and said, you know, I've decided that I can't really in good conscience publish this. (laughs) I sort of asked him for his reasons. And I mean, he gave me reasons that just really didn't hold water. I mean, you know, the best interpretation is that he felt that by criticizing the left, I was giving aid and comfort to the right. Is kind of what about is. And I think that that is one of the, that thought, first of all, I'm not even sure I believe that that was his motive. I suspect that he was just, it was the usual scenario where there were young staff who told him that they were going to well, quit on mass if this horrible piece was published, even though he was retiring. I don't have evidence of that. That's just my suspicion. Even if what he told me was his genuine reason, I think that's one of the things that has really crippled open and honest discussion on the left. This feeling that if we criticize ourselves, we are helping Donald Trump and his minions. And again, 
you know, aside from the fact that I think that they're, to me, it's precisely by not criticizing ourselves that we're helping the other side because we're keeping ourselves stupid and politically stupid. Mm-hmm. And you see the evidence of that Everywhere. right now. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. And one of the things I came away from this book with is, is a feeling of surprise, which is something that I don't get a lot right now. <laughs> There were so many essays and so many thoughts in this book that were surprising to me. And, you know, I should say for listeners, it it touches on so many topics, technology, higher education, dance, art, literature, friendship, foodism, Jewish culture. I found the breadth of your interest here really invigorating, but I want to pull, as I say, a, a few of the sort of surprising essays. You included an address that you delivered at West Point, Solitude and Leadership. And you talk about the U.S. Army as a bureaucracy. Walk me through those realizations about how bureaucracies work and what it means to be an actual real leader within them. Right. Yeah, I think this is a really important and another under-discussed fact. So I was asked by some people I knew who were teaching in the English department at West Point, this was quite a few years ago, 2009, to talk to the plebes, the first-year class, about solitude, because I had written an essay which is the title essay of the collection, The End of Solitude. And they thought it would be useful if I talked to their kids, let's say, about this. You know, and I was thinking, you know, I'm used to teaching and traveling among sort of Ivy League types. I don't really understand the kids at West Point. I don't really think that a spectacled intellectual, would-be intellectual, getting up there talking about solitude is going to cut a lot of ice for them. What do they care about? So I went on the website and it became immediately apparent that what they really care about, the the holiest word there is leadership. For understandable reasons, I think they're one of the few institutions that actually means the word, (laughs) actually means what the word actually means, rather than just getting ahead and being a big shot. So there I had my theme, solitude and leadership. What's the connection? And I thought about it, you know, how can I connect these two concepts? Do they deserve to be connected? And I thought about bureaucracy, and I thought about the bureaucracy that I'd been part of, which was Yale University, specifically the English department. And the person who was chair of the department, I got there and then she served another term as chair. And she was this complete mediocrity who had managed to get tenure and prosper by being a bureaucrat, basically. And I realized, I mean, one of the books that I taught when I was a professor was Heart of Darkness, which people take as a book about colonialism, which it is. But it's also a book about bureaucracy. It's a book about the bureaucracy that's running the Belgian Congo and all the insanity that bureaucracy is liable to, including the fact that the people who prosper are people like the chair of my department. They're these mediocrities who just kind of know how to keep the system going, not rock the boat, never act on principles, never even occurs to them to have principles. (laughs) I I And I think we've seen this this massive failure of the leadership class across the developed world for at least 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to do with, well, a lot of things. But one of them is the dysfunction that bureaucracies are prone to. And so what does real leadership look like in that context? Well, I mean, it goes immediately to what we were talking about before, a willingness not to just go along and not to just shut up. Of course, that's not a good career move, (laughs) right? And, And that's the problem. So it's kind of almost not enough for one person to be courageous. I mean, we've seen lots of examples of one person being courageous. They're on the list of people who've been canceled. So what we need, I mean, it's, it's almost a chicken and egg problem. We need leaders who are already in place, who are willing to protect those who speak out. And instead, 
And again, I'm thinking mainly of the university sector that I know best. Instead, they always go along with the baying mob that's trotting out the, the guillotine. Instead of standing for institutional principles and saying, you know, I think of, I think of Lyndon Johnson, who was the consummate political operator, finally got to be president. And his top priority, you know, I think his top priority, certainly among his top priorities, was civil rights, voting rights. And his advisor said, you know, if you do this, we're going to lose the South. He knew that the Democratic Party was going to lose the South. And he said, what's the presidency for? Mm. You know, all that cunning was leading to the moment where he could actually do something. And his advisor would say, don't, you know, don't do this. It's going to cost you. Well, what was the point of all of this? Just to live in a nice house? University president? Just to think well of yourself? Editor of The New Yorker, The New York Times, whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, now's the time. Now is the time that history is calling you. I know that sounds grandiose, but I think it's true. I tend to think it's true as well. And where we haven't prepared people well to be in these positions, another point that you make in this book time and time again, and, and one of the essays I'm thinking about is, is the disadvantages of an elite education. This is an essay from 2008. You write that elite educations are anti-intellectual. They leave students ill-prepared for adversity and out of touch with their fellow citizens. With wealth inequality, you know, at staggering levels now, the rich increasingly isolated from the rest of the population. When you think about that essay, what do you see as the consequences of that elite model of education right now in this present moment? Well, I think it's precisely the failure of the leadership class. So, I mean, that essay in some ways, I mean, it's the essay that I was preparing to write the entire time, the 10 years that I was at Yale. I was thinking, I didn't know that it ever would be an essay, but I was thinking about this stuff all the time because of what I saw among my students who I loved. I thought they were really smart, really hardworking. But this system, I mean, it's basically the insane elite college, selective college admission system, where at this point, Stanford and Columbia and a few other schools have acceptance rates of under 5%. So what does it do to these kids, most of whom who grow up in the professional upper middle class, who have parents who are high achievers, what does it do to them to live the first 18 years of their lives pointed at this incredibly narrow funnel that they have to squeeze themselves through? And what it does is it makes them risk averse. It doesn't give them a chance to figure out who they are, what they really care about, because they're just jumping through one hoop after another. It makes them see everyone around them as competitors. It certainly cuts them off from the experience of 90% of their fellow countrymen. So that essay became my book, Excellent Sheep. And in the last section of that book, I answer the question that you just asked, right? And I think about how all the characteristics I saw among these kids are also the characteristics of the leadership class, the people who ran the Iraq war, who are responsible for the financial collapse of 2008, Enron, and so on and so forth. They were self-serving, they were risk averse, they really had no idea what was going on, which is why they were able to miscalculate so drastically. And then we saw it again, I think another great example was the Hillary Clinton campaign, completely out of touch with the American reality. And, you know, I feel like if she had had a few fewer advisors with double agents and Ivy League degrees and a few more who had gone to ordinary public high schools, you know, in non-affluent, non-elite parts of the country, maybe she would have known that she needed to visit Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania so forth. You also write on political correctness. This was written in 2017, but striking how relevant it is to today. I want to read a quote from that. 
Selective private colleges are now religious institutions. The religion in question is not Methodism or Catholicism, but an extreme version of the belief system of the liberal elite, the liberal professional, managerial, and creative classes, which produce a large majority of students enrolled at such institutions and an even larger majority of faculty and administrators who work at them. To attend these schools is to be socialized and not infrequently indoctrinated into that religion. And you can see how that has spread to so many aspects of life now, the institutionalization of this sort of, I don't know what else to call it, but wokeness. But it was striking to me. I think that was one of the early sort of articulations of the idea that this is religious. Yeah. I mean, I should say, as I talk about in a couple of other essays in the book, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community, not the hat, black coat, ultra-Orthodox, but, you know, modern Orthodox. But it was a, you know, an insular community. I went to modern Orthodox schools. And uh, I eventually broke out of that. And I more and more, starting in about 2015, just saw uh, analogy after analogy to the world that I grew up in. What you couldn't do, what you couldn't say, what you had to do, what you had to say. I should say I left Yale in 2008, left academia in 2008. And in 2015, I was invited to one of the Claremont colleges, you know, the cluster of five elite liberal arts colleges in Southern California to teach for a semester. So 2015, it was after the divide, right? And Megan and others have talked about around 2013, 2014, that this thing that we now call wokeness emerged. I wasn't aware of that. But literally the first day, the first conversation I had when I got to campus in January of 2015, it hit me in the face and I saw it every day that semester. And that essay on political correctness that ended up coming out a couple of years later was my digestion of what I started to see there and what my students were telling me. You know, I was at Scripps, a women's college, very progressive. Students were coming to me in private in office hours telling me that they were strong feminists and that they were terrified to open their mouths, lest they violate some injunction that they were not yet aware of. So, Yeah, I remember reading that exact line and thinking like, and that was before the moment we're in right now, where feminists are really under fire for talking about sort of gender and, and women's spaces. And I mean, it's only accelerated from there. You wrote about class and the, the role that class plays in these dynamics. And one thought that I found really striking student protest you wrote has the power it does because of the diminishing power of faculty, particularly because so many instructors are precariously employed. And that this protest is from student activists is often not protest at all because it's actually perfectly aligned with the administration's own ideology. Yeah, right. I mean, there's this still veneer of sort of countercultural sort of intrepid rebellion. Obviously, the thing that's always being reenacted are the protests of the 60s. But those really were adversarial. I mean, now we've long since come to a time where the generation of the 60s has become the authorities, and they're extremely sympathetic to student protesters now. I mean, they give them awards in some cases. And so that sort of adversarialism is kind of a pantomime at this point. Those protesters are not countercultural at all, and yet they put on the glamour of sort of counterculture and, you know, fighting the power. You are the power. This is what <laughs> I want to say to them. You are the power. You mm -hmm. are the people. I mean, and after all, it's like, why are you at this school? Why are you at Harvard or Brown or, the script or Scripps? You're there because you want to be in the elite, in the establishment, among the powerful. I mean, who do you actually think you are? But you're not taking responsibility for that. It's a kind of denial of one's own reality to get back to reality. I just think it's so important and so hard for 
people to see who they actually are in the world. And I think a variety of factors, and especially the internet and social media and the way it enables us to play roles and to be affirmed in the roles that we're playing, is making it harder and harder for people to see who they actually are and the position they actually occupy in society. One of the previously unpublished essays in this collection is about why you left academia. And I found that particular essay very moving. I mentioned that moment reading evolutionary biologist Colin Wright's essay and about and kind of just knowing when I read that line, like, uh oh, I'm in trouble because I'm not going to go along. And I was wondering, like, when you look back on that time, when did you understand that you were not going to sort of sacrifice care for your students and critical inquiry and honest, straightforward writing to this professionalism, to this ideology? When did you know? Right. So again, let me, so there's no doubt about it. As I say in the essay, I didn't leave voluntarily. This wasn't a principled decision. (laughs) You know, I just wasn't able to find another job as I expected to be able to find like my next job after Yale. I just didn't. But it is true that most of the reasons that I didn't is because I didn't play the game that you were supposed to. And the game that you're supposed to play is just focus on your research. Don't spend a second you don't have to spend on teaching on students don't spend a second on writing that isn't, you know, peer-reviewed academic journal writing, but I was writing book reviews and I was writing essays and so forth. And I just felt like, you know, I'm not going to, like, what would be the point of winning a position, of winning tenure, if the position involves doing things that I hate and not doing the things that I love and think are important, right? So either I'm going to do this on my terms or I'm not going to do it at all, which was, you know, risky and maybe I don't think entitled is the right word, but it's not like I felt like I deserved to do that. I just was going to try and I thought I could get away with it. So it actually was only very late in the game. You know, I went back on the job market like my sixth year at Yale and I went on sixth year, seventh year, eighth year, ninth year, and each year I'm going to get that next job. And each year it didn't happen. And it was inconceivable to me that I would be leaving academia, mainly because I didn't know what the hell else I was going to do. But after that fourth year, you know, of of striking out on the job market, I thought, well, this isn't going to happen for me. So I need to do something else. You know, I mean, it was a realization that was forced on me with great terror, I should say. (laughs) You know, I mean, that first month where I didn't actually get a paycheck automatically deposited in my account was vertiginous. Let's put it that way. (laughs) And you have made this life as a writer and, you know, writing books and writing essays and being part of that cultural conversation. I was curious about Portland and how you feel about Portland and the kind of life of a writer in Portland right now. Are you asking about sort of what, you know, what's been in the news about Portland in the last couple of years? (laughs) Yeah, it it strikes me as as a hyper kind of woke place. But, you know, everywhere has its own pockets, right? Listen, to be perfectly honest, I don't interact very much with many people in Portland. I moved here as a writer. My, you know, I write for places that are not headquartered in Portland. Very few of my readers are in Portland. I mean, this is not necessarily, I'm not boasting about this, that I'm not particularly connected to the place that I live. It's a good place to do my work. It's been a pleasant place to live. I recognize that many of the people here probably at this point certainly do not share my view of the world. And I worry about what's happening to the city, for sure. Although the truth is I worry more about gentrification from all the money flowing up from California than I do about Antifa. I don't know what's going to happen to Portland. And I, you know, Portland is 
one of those places where progressive governance is being tested. Unfortunately, there's a hard core of Antifa people who are really disconnected from reality and don't care how their actions are affecting other people. So, but I'll also say that, you know, when I moved here 14 years ago in 2008, it was a different city. It was a much more interesting city. It hadn't started to gentrify. And it was ultimately kind of the creative effervescence of sort of all the young people who are like setting up food carts and boutique little, you know, sustainable businesses that led me to think about the forms that creativity are taking now and ultimately led me to write the book that came out two years ago that I was on Megan's podcast for called, it was called The Death of the Artist, the publisher mm-hmm. gave it that title. But it's about how artists, musicians, writers, visual artists are making a living or trying to make a living in the internet age which I think is a really important topic that nobody wants to talk about outside of the arts because everybody just wants to get their free music and their free content, their free podcasts, and not think about the people who are creating those things and what they need to do to continue to create. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such an important topic and I've been a journalist and a writer for 20 years, and it, it just keeps getting incrementally more and more difficult to get the work out there. But I do feel quite hopeful about independent media. I mean, like the Substack model seems so far to be working quite well. Do you feel hopeful about that new kind of rise of independent media that is getting all of these essays out there? You know, it's funny, as you can probably tell, I'm someone who not only doesn't tend to feel hopeful, but actually starts <laughs> to worry when I do. So there are very few things that I feel hopeful about, but I absolutely agree with you. And this has really come out of nowhere. It's exciting. It's really exciting. Substack, podcasts, you know, the thing that Barry Weiss is building out, kind of an alternative media organ, unheard, Quillette, et cetera, et cetera. It is exciting. And it just, you know, the way that I deal with my pessimism, my natural pessimism, is to remind myself that history, the one thing we can say about the future is that we can't say anything for certain about the future. I've lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union, 9-11, the financial crash, the election of Donald Trump. None of those things were predictable or predicted the day before they happened, and they all happened. So the one thing that I think we must avoid is the idea that history is going to continue on the trajectory that it's on now, because that's never how it works. Yeah. There's always lots of surprises, which is Thank God for that. <laughs> I want to end by talking about one of the essays that seemed like one of the hearts of the book. This is about your graduate advisor. And I just felt like that was quite moving because it shows a different way, the way of conversation, the way of connection, the way of open inquiry. Tell me about Carl Kroeber. Yeah, he was my graduate advisor. He was a graduate advisor to many, many people in the Columbia English Department. He was a remarkable man. He was already in his 60s when I took his first class. He continued to teach until a few months before he died in his 80s of pancreatic cancer. And not only that, but he retired. And then he spent the last summer of his life writing another book about a poet, William Blake, that he'd been studying for 50 years and suddenly realized he'd been wrong about the whole time. I mean, this was a guy who was young and energetic until the end, who was always, we talk about surprise, was always willing to be taken by surprise, always open to everything, not sour about the young, excited about the young. He declined to have the traditional retirement party where his colleagues stood around trying to think of nice things to say to him. And instead took his junior colleagues, the recently hired, the untenured professors out to lunch to hear, to ask them about their research. He was still interested. And as I said, a few months before he died. So 
you know, he's become a model for me and never wanting to get settled in my thinking, never wanting to think that I have the answer. And I think this brings us back to where we started with piece about NPR. And, you know, I've been surprised at how much I've been surprised and how less settled my beliefs about the world are than they were just a few years ago and really have been my entire adult life. I mean, even trying to live up to Carl's example. Now I really feel it. It's like, I feel destabilized, one of Megan's favorite words. I feel destabilized, <laughs> but I also realize that that's a really good thing. There's so many accepted beliefs that I have to re-examine, which is tough, but also every one of those is an opportunity to get a clearer picture of reality. Mm -hmm. I really admire that ability to sort of pull back and to change your mind and to be open to change. And it's certainly something I'm aspiring to. I also find it destabilizing, but in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is a good place to leave it. I really encourage everyone to read this book. There's just so much here to think and read on. And I just found it such a satisfying read. And, and thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>